Well, I've entitled tonight a mutual society. I'm not going to try and sell you shares and anything like that. Uh, but a mutual society, I understand from a dictionary definition, is, quote, owned by its members and dividing its profits between them. Apparently, a non-mutual bank or building society is owned by the shareholders who take out of it a share of the profits. And maybe there are some who would try and argue the case for one or the other. But if a mutual society exists for the benefit of its members, should that be a picture for the church of Jesus Christ? Well, no, but also yes. Listen to this in terms of the no in evangelistic terms. Uh, former Archbishop of Canterbury, Archbishop William Temple, said this, the church is the only cooperative society in the world that exists for the benefit of its non-members. So if we think of the church evangelistically, we may say, well, it's not really a mutual society. It exists solely for the benefit of its non-members. If we took that seriously in the Christian church in Ireland, then we would design our ministries and our services for those who are not yet part of God's family. If we took it seriously that we exist primarily for the benefit of those who don't yet belong, we would invest more and more in seeking to reach the lost. And I think that's a constant challenge to us in the church. Where are our priorities? And if we look at, and I haven't looked at your accounts, I don't know the, 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 the answer to this question, but if we look at how much money we spend on ourselves and how much money we send going out, maybe it says something about our priorities. Yet surely the church is a mutual society in the sense of looking out for one another, caring for one another, including one another as much as possible, and supporting one another. If you want to look through a book that helps you understand something of that kind of church mutual society, John Stott in his book, The Living Church, is one that I recommend to you, published by IVP. Uh, the, the subtitle for this is Convictions of a Lifelong Pastor. And John Stott was a kind of uh, theological hero of mine as I was uh, growing up. So any book that he has written, I'd always be happy uh, to recommend. But Stott outlines the biblical basis for what he calls every member ministry or what the Bible calls the priesthood of all believers. And I want to share something that he writes on page 79. Uh, and this is me as a Presbyterian clergyman, him writing as a Church of England clergyman about pastoral ministry. And he writes this, uh, There is much uncertainty today about the role of the church's leaders. What are clergy, if we use this word? Are they priests or pastors? Preachers, presbyters, prophets, or psychotherapists. Nearly said physiotherapists there, I need one at the moment. Uh, are they educators, facilitators, administrators, managers, or social workers? Different answers are given to these questions. In fact, the church is oscillated between two opposite unbiblical extremes, namely clericalism, putting clergy on a pedestal, and anti-clericalism, knocking them off it again. Now that churches have recovered the every-member ministry of the local church, people are asking whether clergy are not redundant. Well, you might guess where I would come in the answer to that question. But as 
Paul, uh, as the, John Stott goes through that book, he uh, describes the local church as being both pastoral and plural in its leadership. He describes himself and elders of the church as shepherds. He warns of the rise of teachers who are teaching false doctrine. Isn't that partly why we invest in training uh, clergy and others to be uh, uh, the teaching elder of the church in terms of the clergy, but also for all of us to impart biblical teaching and to refute error. And Stott also says that Paul, the apostle, affirms the value of the people who are described in the New Testament as God's flock don't really want to go into that tonight, but I want to briefly look at uh, some of the things that come to us from 1 John chapter 3. And without wishing to be simplistic, perhaps the answer to the issue of pastoral care in a congregation is given in the three words that's certainly at the head of my NIV version of the Bible that I use, and it's simply this, love one another. Sometimes we can complicate pastoral care. Sometimes we can complicate how we do it and how we make sure everybody is included. But actually, the biblical command is very simple and yet very profound, love one another. The fact that a clergyman or elders have a certain oversight in the church does not lessen the command often repeated in Scripture and especially by Jesus that we love one another. How are we to do that? even as he, the Savior, loves us. To explain this, John gives a positive and a negative example to teach us something about what it is to love one another. First of all, the negative example of Cain in verses 11 to 15. If you have your Bible open there, you may want to look at that. I'll not read through it uh, all again, but uh, verses 11 to 15. The motive for the first recorded murder amongst human beings was quite simple, jealousy. Verse 12 uh, and the, the beginning part of that in First John uh, chapter 3. Let me read that for you if I may. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Abel's sacrifice was pleasing to God and Cain's was not. If you read the original account in Genesis, uh, you understand that Abel brought God the best that he had, but Cain brought God something that cost him little. So when Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God, Cain was envious of his brother and of the blessing that God gave him. So the way negatively not to love one another, therefore, is to allow feelings of envy, bitterness, unforgiveness, competitiveness, rivalry, or spiritual superiority to develop. Maze is a diverse congregation. I've learned that over the months that I've been with you. Uh, and yet, you don't have to look far to find people who are maybe more gifted maybe wealthier, maybe even more talented uh, than you or me. And uh, the way of Cain allows jealousy and other negative feelings to enter in and to begin to separate our fellowship uh, and instead of loving one another, which is the outcome of a true spiritual life, a lack of love begins to be evidence of the old life that we should have left behind when we came to Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14 of 1 John uh, chapter 3, and this is what we read. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers 
are sisters. Anyone who does not love remains in death. And if that isn't strong enough, he follows it up with verse 15. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. So John begins with a a negative example. Don't be like Cain. Don't be jealous of others or filled with bitterness or envy or or separate yourself from others because uh, you you think they're different from you and not as good or maybe you think you're not as good as they are. The negative example. The positive example is, of course, the example of Jesus. And you read about that in verses 16 to 18, uh, which begins, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Jesus is the model for us to emulate. He gave his life for us. Why? Because he loved us. And we don't understand that love of God, and we don't understand the depth of his love, and we don't understand how it is that he could love us, and yet the Bible tells us that he went to the cross just for you and for me. And so we too should be prepared to love one another, even if we are very different to each other, even if some of us are rich and some of us are poor, even if some of us are successful or unsuccessful, however you uh, gauge that, even if we're a leader or a follower. In fact, when you think of it, John 3.16 is central to our understanding of the gospel. I hope you don't need me to tell you what that verse says. But you can contrast John 3.16 with 1 John 3.16, which I I read just a moment ago, that we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. That's why John continues in verse 18, Dear children, let us love not with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. How do you know that somebody loves you? Uh, How do you really gauge whether somebody truly, truly loves you. It's surely more in what they do than in what they say. Words can be cheap. How do we know that if we're a pastoral, caring, loving church, that the love of Jesus is manifest within our congregation? It's seen in what we do for each other. Thousands of daily, little, sometimes large acts of kindness, sympathy, tenderness, compassion, and a forgiving spirit expressed tangibly within the context of our fellowship together in Christ. Uh, And and, uh, an example of practical care that John gives is found uh, in verse uh, 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God in him. I'm very fond of the cartoon uh, Peanuts. Uh, and there's uh, one winter when uh, Charlie Brown and Linus are walking down the, the road and they've got fur coats and big fur hats and gloves on. And little Snoopy is sitting out in the snow uh, and is shivering. Uh, and they just walk past the dog and say, be of good comfort and cheer. And they walk on in their warm clothes and Snoopy's just shaking and shivering with the cold. How do we know that we love one another? It's when we begin to be practical and we show evidence of that love. Let me share one, uh, just one little story uh, from what happened to 
us some years ago. I, I was in the, the manse one evening, uh, ready to actually go to bed, probably about uh, quarter to 11 at night, and the door went, and one of my elders in the doorstep said, oh, grief, there's trouble. Uh, but uh, he wouldn't come in. He handed me two envelopes that were quite thick, uh, and he said, uh, God has blessed my wife and I, and we've been praying about this, and we're just about to go on a big holiday, but he's told us to put this money in these two envelopes and ask you to distribute them to someone. Would you pray about that and find out whom uh, you should give this to? Now, I absolutely hate taking money from anybody. Uh, and I, I remember preaching one Sunday, and I reached into my jacket pocket, and I pulled out a 20-pound note, I knew it wasn't mine, but could I remember who gave it to me? Uh, not at all. Uh, stuck it in the offering anyway. But, but on this occasion, I took the two envelopes and I prayed, Lord, what do you want me to do? Uh, and two families came to mind and I went round to visit them the next day. And uh, in the first home I went into and uh, the people opened the envelope in front of me. So I, I knew from that how much money was in. And they said to me, Ken, this is amazing. Uh, we've had a problem and we're not able to pay our mortgage at the end of this month. And what's in this envelope is just five pounds more than our mortgage payment for the month. Thank you. I said, well, don't thank me. The guy, the elder wanted to be anonymous, so I wasn't able to tell them who it was. I then went to a second home and uh, uh, they again, they didn't open the envelope in front of me, uh, and, uh, but they talked to me afterwards and they said when they opened the envelope, they cried because they hadn't been able to afford to be on holiday for five years, uh, two young children. And they said what was in the envelope was just enough for them to hire a cottage for a self-catering holiday, uh, and they were able to have their first holiday in five years. The Church of Jesus Christ needs to care one for the other. Be open to God the Holy Spirit, prompting you, uh, encouraging you to do and say not just say lovely things, but to do practical things. Uh, and that's, I think, a very important way of showing the mutual society of the church of Jesus Christ. So how can the church be this mutual society? Being aware of the negative and positive examples from the lives of Cain and Jesus, one thing, doing or being a caring church is another. Let me quote Gary Burge, uh, who has written a commentary on 1 John. And he says this, the entire section that we read earlier suggests that the church is to become a life-giving community. It should be a place where men, women, and children are healed, not hurt. That's so important. Where the rich take genuine responsibility for the poor. I think the elder I spoke about was doing that. Where lives flourish both spiritually and materially. It should be a place where men, women, and children are healed and not hurt. I wonder what responsibility I have in my role in the Christian church for hurting people. Sometimes they've been gracious enough to tell me, and we've been able to work through the issues. Sometimes maybe people just left, and I wasn't aware of the reasons. It should be a place of healing and not hurt. What is it about church that sometimes the most horrible things can be said within a church context that if you're in a secular workplace, you'd be up in a tribunal uh, or, or you would be taken to task by your superiors. 
And yet in the church, sometimes we feel we have the right to say things to people that are unloving and unhelpful and hurtful. Church should be a place where men, women, and children are healed and not hurt, where the rich take genuine responsibility for the poor. About asking God, is there anybody in this wealthy church that actually isn't as wealthy as they seem, that your richness could help, where lives flourish both spiritually and materially? Sometimes we're more concerned about material flourishing than spiritual flourishing. And if we look carefully at these uh, verses 19 to 24 at the end of the chapter, very, very quickly, I want to suggest three things that we can learn. First of all, we need a faith that is rooted in Jesus Christ. Verse 23 of uh, 1 John chapter 3, let me read that for you again. And this is uh, his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he's commanded us. But the first bit is, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. Our faith is not rooted in the church. Our faith is not rooted in other Christians. Our faith is not rooted in the things that are idols to us, but only in a living and personal, deepening, discipleship, growing, personal relationship with Jesus. It may be a cliche, but the truth is that the closer we get to Jesus, the more we learn to love him, then we would be better equipped to love each other. I used to say when I married people that uh, you're involved in a love triangle and they'd look at me and I said, well, if you think of an isosceles triangle uh, and uh, two people at the foot of that triangle and God at the apex, that the closer you move to God, the closer you move to each other. And I think that's very true for the whole of life, not just for a marriage illustration. If our faith is rooted in Jesus, the more we love him, the more we will love one another. And then secondly, we need to be obedient to what pleases God, verses 22 and 23. I'm aware that sort of repeating some of these verses, but let me do that again. Uh, Verse 22, receive from him anything that we ask when we uh, are in Christ because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command to believe and to love as Christ has loved us. We need, in fact, to learn to love the unlovely. I don't know about you, but church is an interesting kind of construct. Um, When you think of the friends that you have, you tend to choose friends that are most like yourself. Uh, You maybe share common interests. You maybe uh, like the same things. You maybe even like the same kind of food. Who knows? But you tend to gravitate to people who are quite like yourself. And then you come to church, and in church you have this whole range of different people, personalities and people that you never rub shoulders with in ordinary everyday life. Or if you happen to work with some of the characters, you could probably avoid them if you really wanted to. But in church we're thrown together with a whole range of diverse people. And sometimes, some of the people, dare I say it in church, not not obviously maze, but people, places I've been, sometimes some of the people are less easy to love than others. And one of the challenges for me as a Christian and for you and what John is saying about being obedient to God is how are we willing to invest ourselves in loving those who are least 
likely to be loved by us. Different personalities, people with attitudes and values that are not yours. Uh, and uh, therefore, I think our obedience to God brings us to a point of saying we need to love one another as Christ has loved us. Let me go back to John Stott's uh, little book, uh, The Living Church, uh, this time quoting from page uh, 88. So how shall we persevere in loving the unlovable? Only, I think, by remembering how precious they are. Now, remember, this is a man who subtitled this, The Convictions of a Pastor. They are so valuable that the three persons of the Trinity are together involved in caring for them. I find it very challenging when trying to help a difficult person to say under my breath, how precious you are in God's sight. God the Father loves you. Christ died for you. The Holy Spirit is appointed your pastor, or you may say friend. As the three persons of the Trinity are committed to your welfare, it is a privilege for me to serve you. So what about those who are a little bit more difficult to love? Do we see it as our privilege to serve them? Do we see it as our privilege to be those who include them as brothers and sisters in the family of God? And do we take time and care to say, Lord, teach me to love the unlovable? Are we a mutual society? Someone once wrote this. You quickly lose interest in the church if you have nothing invested. You quickly lose interest in the church if you have nothing invested. And then finally, I think this. We need to be people of the Spirit of Jesus. That last verse again. Uh, those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gives us. I think it's lovely. You know, Christianity is so simple in some ways. I, I, as a little child, I prayed the prayer, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in today, come in to stay, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Uh, and he did uh, over 60 years ago now. Uh, and it's so simple. And yet it's so complicated. Uh, and yet sometimes I think, as I said earlier, we give complications to things that should be simple. We just need to learn to love one another. But we need to be people of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables us to call God our Abba, Father. Abba was that interesting word in New Testament that, that Jesus actually said we could call God our Abba. Uh, and uh, it, it really would be translated in modern-day English as Dad or Dada. Uh, in, in literal terms. And, and Jesus says, when you have the Holy Spirit living in your life, you can relate to God as your heavenly, and if it doesn't sound uh, ignorant, your heavenly dad. We kind of recoil at that a wee bit in our culture. But Jesus said, that's how you can relate to God, your heavenly Father, through the Holy Spirit. He is personal. He is real. He is the one that the Holy Spirit brings us into reality relationship and who gives us the mind and the heart and the Spirit of Jesus. And therefore, as the Apostle Paul encouraged the Ephesians to keep on and on and on being filled with the Spirit, you and I need to pray for that daily. I don't know whether you make it a practice or not to say, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Uh, I find it a very useful prayer to pray because it, it reminds me that my dependency is upon God and not myself. Uh, as we go to visit someone, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me to be a person of your integrity and love and grace and mercy to this person.
Uh, when you go into work uh, tomorrow morning, as many of you will, what about praying for the Holy Spirit to fill and equip you to be God's witness in your workplace, to be loving and to be... Do you know what? There are some people in work that nobody ever smiles at them. You know, even a smile can indicate something to someone. Uh, I, I love the story of uh, a minister. When I went to a retirement conference, uh, I want to thank you all, by the way, for your contribution to my retirement conference. I didn't know this, but the Presbyterian Church every year brings retiring clergymen to the Sleeve Donard Hotel. Uh, and we get two nights in the Sleeve Donard Hotel that we don't have to pay for, but you did. <laughs> Shouldn't have told you that. See, when William Henry come to retire, <laughs> just you wait, it'll be the, the, some place in, uh, in Qatar or something like that, who knows. But uh, we, we, we got to the hotel, and uh, I, do you know what? I've started into that, and I've completely forgotten why on earth I was going to say it. Uh, 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 do you know, isn't that so embarrassing? I haven't a clue why I was going to say that. Uh, but there we are, you know, now I had a retirement conference in the Sleeve Donald Hotel, and it was really, really nice. Uh, but um, yes, I know who I was, what, what I was going to say. One of the clergymen there at that conference uh, had retired a couple of years before us. Uh, and he challenged me and encouraged me, and he said this. He said, my wife and I bought a house in a new-build area, and we've bought a house in a similar kind of new-build area. And he said, we recognized that all the, the people around about us were going out to work, uh, father and mother, two, two people going out. In fact, he said most of them were unmarried people and uh, they, they'd all gone out to, out to work. Uh, and on bin day, the bins were blocking the streets. So he and his wife went round and asked the neighbours one by one, would you like if we would bring your bin in when they've been emptied? Uh, and they bring in about 10 or 11 or 12 uh, neighbours' bins. Uh, and he said it's been incredible. He said, out of the 10 or 11 homes that they've been doing that, five have suddenly decided to get married uh, and then wondered, would he either do the service or come to their wedding? And he said, of course, I'd be delighted. Uh, and just doing something simple, like bringing in the neighbor's bin, has opened up conversations for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you see, I think it's not complicated loving one another. It's just doing those little things that make a difference and that say through actions more than words, we care and God cares for you. And so we ask the Holy Spirit to fill us with wisdom and grace and help. And nothing develops true pastoral care in the church than the people who are obedient to the command to put Jesus first and to love one another. So let's do it, and let's pray. Father, as we've been thinking through a mutual society from 1 John, help us just to assess our lives. I don't know where these folks are going to be tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. Some will undoubtedly be at home. Some will undoubtedly be in work some may be going out for a day of socializing with friends, who knows. But may it be the case, Father, that wherever we find ourselves tomorrow, we would seek to, by the power of your Holy Spirit, 
and the direction and guidance of your Holy Spirit just to demonstrate love. Love for one another, but also going back to William Temple's uh, statement about the church as the only mutual society which exists for the benefit of its non-members. Help us to love our neighbors also as ourselves. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.